There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Denny Lane performs live at the Ram's Head in Annapolis, Maryland on Sunday, February 5th. I spoke to Lane about his British roots before forming the Moody Blues for hits like Go Now and Paul McCartney's Wings for hits like Live and Let Die and Band on the Run. Hey, Denny Lane. Hey, thanks so much for taking time to join us on WTOP. Okay, how are you, Jason? I'm doing all right. We're here talking with the Rock and Roll Hall of Famer himself of Moody Blues, Wings, all the solo stuff. You know, you you know and love his music, but we're talking because you are coming to the Rams Head in Annapolis on Sunday, February 5th. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, I know you're calling this, it's a solo acoustic tour. It's called Songs and Stories. Uh, what do we got? Is it is it... Is it a little wing stuff, a little moody blue stuff, a little solo stuff, uh, everything? Yeah, all the above? Yeah, exactly that. I mean, I'm concentrating on, on my songs, whatever I wrote or sang on, mo- mainly. You know what I mean? I'm not doing I'm not doing a, a, a wings tribute <laughs> or a moody blues tribute show. These are songs I was involved with, either writing or sang. And Oh, uh, you know, I'm kind of concentrating on the songwriting side more, and the stories are really about how the songs came together. That's about it, really. And I'm also doing some of my stuff, you know, that people don't may not know as well. So it's a good. I I I enjoy doing this kind of thing. I haven't done it for a couple of years. I did one the other week, and it got me back into it again. So I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be good. I love the Rams Head anyway. It's a great gig. It's a great place. Oh, so you've swung through there in Annapolis multiple times before? I have. I've done the band thing there a few times, but I've uh, you know never done the solo thing. So it's I like it there. Nice people. Awesome, awesome. Well, you, uh, I know I don't want to spoil the whole set list, but do you want to throw? Could you throw out you know a song two or three? You know, just a teaser of what some of the some of the hits we our listeners might hear if they come on out. Well, I mean, I'm doing Go now from the Moody Blues. I'm doing a couple of other old Moody Blues things. I'm doing, you know, No Words from the Band on the Run album. I'll probably throw in a bit of Band on the Run and, and Mollifkin's Tire, which is a huge hit, which I co-wrote. Also, it's all to do with that. And um, and like I said, you know, some, some other stuff from that era or both those era, plus my own stuff from the 80s. You know, so I'll just kind of mix it up and see what happens with the audience. I mean, they they might come up with a couple of shout out, a couple of titles, and I might have a go. I, I don't know for sure. That's what I like about it. It's it's not like being with a band. You, it's a lot more freedom when you're doing this kind of thing. You know, so that's right. Yeah, the audience dictates sometimes what you what you feel like playing. They might give a shout out, a request. 
So it's just, so just to confirm, it is going to be just you solo on stage, no band behind you, just you and the audience. Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah. Well, that's going to be really cool. That's got, and you know, you've probably played huge stadium shows, big packed rooms, but is it always, I mean, why is it so, why do you enjoy just playing, you know, those intimate sets where it's just you and the audience and a guitar? Well, it's because I started doing it after having done the band thing for a couple of years and I went off the road basically just before the uh, the pandemic hit. And I had started doing some of these solo things. And I enjoyed it so much. And the, the thought of getting a tour together with the band or all that was, you know, it was impossible to think that far ahead in those days. So I just thought I'd try this and see what happens. And it, like I say, it goes goes down well people like it it's more you know it's more intimate when you're playing these big venues you don't get that kind of intimacy really it's it's just a different thing but i don't do those big things anyway i just do this and see what happens and uh it's like how i started in the early days you know it's you and an audience really well, speaking of you starting in the early days, whenever I have a you know a rock and roll hall of famer like yourself, a legend on, I always love to see how you you know got in this racket to begin with. I know you you know were born in you know Birmingham, England, and what in in forty four. How did you? What was your first exposure to music? What you know? Did your parents play, or did you, were you listen to the radio, or what was it? What what sparked it for you? Well, after the war, you know, there was like a lot of. A lot of music around. I mean, people all had pianos in their houses. They had to entertain themselves. And so all the baby boomers that came after the war were already into music. I mean, the whole family would sit around and sing songs, you know, to morale sort of thing. So it was a part of life, like a working class life, you know. So my sisters were very big fans of lots of different styles of music. My parents the same. You know, it was it was mainly kind of standards of the day, you know, but but it was also jazz infused and and instrument infused, you know, like pianists and jazz guitarists and things like that. I grew up listening to people like uh, Ella Fitzgerald and Django Reinhardt and you know Mario Lanza, <laughs> Johnny Ray, people like that. So I mean, I had a pretty eclectic sort of background musically, anyway. But as soon as rock and roll came around, you know, we were all we were all into that. I mean, we're into folk music in a way because people used to make up little songs and sing them, you know, at little gatherings. And and that's what, what Britain really is in a way. I mean, a lot of that music came to America, don't forget, from Ireland and Britain and Scotland. All the all the bluegrass stuff came from Europe, you know. So we were we were into all that stuff. And then, of course, Skiffle came along, Lonnie Donegan and uh, those people. So it transposed into us listening to Radio Luxembourg, which was the, the Forces Network, American Forces Network in Germany. And they got some really good, you know, sounds coming across there. To, and so we listened to that and just picked up on that music. And then, of course, you know, that's when all the bands started and uh, we, were, we were playing all over the place, all over Europe. I want to know about that first. I don't know if it's your first, but it was really early on. The Denny Lane and the Diplomats. <laughs> didn't you? Didn't you also have uh, the drummer of eventual drummer of ELO uh, in your band in that early band? That's right, Bev. Yeah, yeah. Bev was um, 
you know, he, he didn't join the Moody's. He was the only one in the diplomats that would have pre been prepared to turn professional. And that's the reason I, I packed that band up because yeah. they didn't want to go. You had to get to London in those days. Yeah. So, you know, that was it. I, I joined up with the other Mike and Ray from the Moody's. Well, the M and B five it started out as, and then we went to London, and that's how you know it all began. But Bev was sitting at home wishing he'd joined because when we had number one with Go Now, I think that gave him the inspiration to say, you know, I got to do something here. <laughs> so <laughs> he, he put that together. But we, you got to remember, we're all influenced by the George Martin Beatles you know, things, so that that ELO thing all came from that. So did my other thing, which is my string band, came from those influences, fusion of music, you know, different styles, and, and that's oh. what everybody was doing it in those days in England. Well, you mentioned inspiration by the Beatles. Did you did you choose Denny Lane as like a rhyme with Penny Lane, or was it mostly because oh. of Frankie Lane? <laughs> no, no, no. No, I kill people who call me Penny Lane. <laughs> <laughs> Denny Lane is in your uh, ear. Oh, you better not I, be. I'm pretty sure, Paul, of course, it's a big place in in Liverpool. And I'm pretty sure Paul saw it of me when he was writing it, you know. Yeah, exactly. Oh, he thought of you. You yeah. inspired it. <laughs> and you know what's weird about that? You know what's weird about this that people, a lot of people don't get? Is that the bass line of Penny Lane? Doom, 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 doom. It's the same bass line as in Go Now. Really? And, yeah. And so Paul used to stand at the side of the stage and watch us doing Go Now. Every night we played, we toured with the Beatles, second British tour. We toured with them. And he would always be there for that song. So, you know, kind of. So wait, so so it's very. I'm not going to say the Beatles ripped off "Go Now" with the Moody's, but it's possible. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to. I am going to say it. So. You are going to say it. Oh yeah, because that's what we all do, and we're proud of it. You know. I so mean, wait, we, I just want to make sure I heard you right. You said they, you know, you were touring with, or you know, they would. You open for them, or they open for you, and they would listen off the side of the stage. All four of them. Well, no, it was. That was the. the Birmingham days when I first met them and then when we went to London we had a management there about a year later we we went off and, and joined um, Brian Epps actually the Beatles we got friendly with the Beatles really in London and I would go off with Paul or whoever George and go and see some of the American bands that came over so we were friends on the scene you know in London yeah. so um, and parties and all that sort of stuff so it just came together that we were hanging out with them and they wanted us to be open for them on their tour. So that's we did. Cool. That's yeah. really cool. Well, well, I, want to go a little, I want to go a little more into some of the other Moody stuff because I know um, we have a ton of fans, uh, including my coworker Dave Preston, who's a huge Moody fan. Uh, did, tell me a little more about the recording of Go Now. Do you, do you remember you know, being in the studio and you guys putting that one together? Very much so because we had... Um, we had a residency at the Marquee Club, which is quite famous now. Um, in those days, all the, the London sort of blues-based bands used to started at the Marquee or the Crawdaddy or Eelpie Island. There were various blues centres, and you know. So anyway, we had a residency there. We were on with the Yardbirds, people like that, and you know, and sort of they eventually they had a, an agency actually called um, Marquee Artists. And um, 
they used to bring all the, the blues artists across from France. Well, a lot of them lived in France because they got more respect out there. And Sonny Boy Williamson was one of the people they brought in. We backed him. So we got into that that world of, of, of being around a lot of the black bluesers, you know. So that was it. So, I mean, we eventually kind of, you know, just kind of got into doing things through that agency. Well, anyway, he decided to build a studio in the back of the Marquee Club. And I, we were the first ones to use it. I know that for a fact because all the all the, the carpentry tools, everything was all lying around, you know, wheelbarrows and stuff. It wasn't finished when we went into Dugo now. So we, you know, we're in and out in a couple of hours. It didn't take that long. And then eventually, you know, we did an album somewhere else. But that was the first marquee studio um, recording ever. So, so I believe, anyway. So that was how that came about. And, you know, it was like experimenting for the first time ourselves um, in a studio, you know. I had a, I'd bought in... Um, well, we had a guy called Alex who was from the Mickey Most, uh, the, the Most Brothers. He was producing it, and then we went on to to work with Denny Cordell and and started recording in other places. But the Marquee was the first place we ever really recorded anything. Yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, I know. I mean, go now. I know you, while you were with the band, uh, I know you were only with them for the first couple of years there in the founding. I, I don't, I don't want to go on without you. From the bottom of my heart, I love you. All. There was a. There's a bunch we could talk about, but I want to um, tell tell me about, um, you know, why you ultimately decided to leave. I guess it was in October of 66 and Justin Hayward, you know, replaced you. And then they did Nights in White Satin and all those other stuff after you. But um, talk about the decision to kind of move on from the Moody's. Well, first of all, I was with the Moody's a lot longer than two years because it was a good year before we came down to Birmingham, from Birmingham to London. We got discovered, actually. And um, so, I mean, after the album, we did the album, Magnificent Moody's, and that didn't, you know, it started off to getting a little bit of respect in the business. I mean, people like Donovan, you know, he did the sleeve notes and we used to play live a lot and we got a lot of good following, but the album didn't do anything. So, you know, I got a little bit and I wanted to do my own thing for a while and I started, you know, this string band thing up, wrote a song called Say Don't Mind as a sort of a, you know, a starter for that. Yeah. And um, and that was recorded by Colin Blundstone later. But, you know, I started being a songwriter more on my own. So I decided to go in and, and record some of my own stuff. And that's how it came about. I didn't really leave. I just kind of drifted away, you know. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was still friendly. I was still staying with a couple of them. And um, just drifted into it, really. And I don't know. They, I said, you, you know, you might as well try and get somebody else or whatever, and see what happens. Because I, you know, the honest truth is, once Clint left the bass player, it wasn't the same band anymore to me. You know, and and this is a band that came down and spent years together and and just made it together. And as soon as you change any member, it's not the same band. So I didn't feel the same, I don't know, you know, closeness to it anymore. And, you know, and the music business, again, 
you know, is a, is a bit upsetting too because you never see any of the money and you're, you're up there being told what to do and you don't want to be told what to do, all that kind of thing. So anyway, I had this thing to try a new venture and that's what I did. I went into the folk world and, and did that, you know. And um, I met a lot of session people like John Paul Jones. He did um, the string parts in Say You Don't Mind. And yeah. you know, again, Danny Cordell produced it and he did a little help from my friends and White Shade of Pale. So we we're all kind of starting out a new venture. And uh, and it was fun, you know. It was because I stayed with the Moody Blues. I would have felt like I was just kind of, you know, lem- and of course they just wanted to go out and earn some money, because they didn't make any money. So I didn't want to just go to Europe and work, do one nighters for the rest of my life. So that was a big decision too, you know. Part of the part of the decision. I'm Bradley Trainer, and I'm Don McLean. We have a podcast called Blinded by the Item. A blind item is gossip about a celebrity with their name left out. It's a guessing game, and you can play along. The item might be like this: A-list star carries a Birkin bag worth more than the average person's house to the gym to work out. Pretty sure that's J-Lo. And P.S. The person behind all of this is Chris Jenner LLC. We drop a new episode every weekday, so the fun never ends. Blinded by the Item. Listen wherever you get podcasts, and watch us on the Blinded by the Item YouTube channel. Absolutely. Well, we're glad that you, you know, spread your wings and stretch your legs and tried some new stuff after that. Because of course, without that, we wouldn't have had you uh, forming wings with Paul McCartney and, and Linda oh, McCartney, yeah. of course, in, in 1971. How, how did that actually come about? I mean, you, you already sort of laid the groundwork for that, that, you know, you knew all the Beatles guys back, back in your early, early days before anyone really hit big, but how did, how did Paul, call, Paul and Linda call you up and say, we want to do a band together. Do you want to join us? How did it come about? Well, Paul called me and uh, I was, I was in between gigs in a way again. I mean, I did have, I did have that string band thing going. They they were always busy doing orchestral stuff around the world, so they weren't that available. These guys, and then I did the thing with Ginger Baker because he was looking to do something, and I knew him well. Um, he was on the him and Jack were on the Chuck Berry tour, and that was the first Moody Blues tour, you know. So anyway, um, we did that with Ginger. And I was sitting around in the office and the phone goes and it was Paul. So he said, you fancy coming up to Scotland, putting a band together? I said, yep. And I was on the next plane. So, you know, it's because we knew each other. He didn't want to go and be around people. He didn't, you know, I mean, treating him like a superstar. And so he, he picked me because I knew him. Simple as that, really. And that's how it's all, it always happens like that. You know, you'd rather work with somebody you know uh, and of course, it was very difficult for him to to not be treated like a superstar, you know. So I think he just wanted it to be normal, you know. Yeah, I mean, did did you did you sort of sense you know any pressure from his you know like suddenly oh you're you're replace not replacing you know Lennon and George Harrison and, and Ringo mm-hmm. but like you know like pressure like oh is this going to be as successful or or was he mostly just excited to have a new outlet and just you know create? Yeah. Yeah, we we never even I I knew all the Beatles. I wasn't intimidated by their fame or anything. I was I was sort of a fan, like anybody yeah. of their music. But but you know, I, it was all it was all about doing something new, and um, otherwise I wouldn't have done it. Right. You know? yeah. So yeah, it was it was all about that, and the fact that he wanted to put a band together, but he was thinking, well, how's that going to go? You know. 
after what do you do after the Beatles or what do you do after the Moody Blues, you know? So it had to be that that new approach of doing original stuff. Uh, and it, of course, it takes a couple of years for any band to get halfway decent. So it was a big, you know, sticking your neck out and doing all that. But we knew what we were doing and it worked. You know, we had a lot of similar, obviously, musical influences. And um, it was easy, really, for me. <laughs> it was easier than being the Moody Blues where I was kind of the front man. And the, you know what I mean? It was great. Absolutely. Well, there's so many wing songs I would love to ask you about. I've, I might have to like rapid fire because there's no way we'll get through all of them. But I want to know what it was like playing on um, Live and Let Die. I mean, that I mean, not only obviously an iconic Bond theme, but I mean, did, did you were you like a Bond fan? And then they you find out you're going to be doing that. That must have been surreal. That song still kicks ass. <laughs> yeah, but I, I wasn't necessarily a Bond fan. I mean, everybody was in them days. Right. And then a lot of people were doing the themes, you know, Tom Jones is a friend of ours, he did one, Lulu. And then, you know, he pulled I'm Thunderball. Yeah. And then then Paul got approached. He didn't tell me, he just got approached. And then uh next minute I know I'm playing bass, you know, in a live recording of it. <laughs> I mean he he played the song and then George Martin got involved and we did it and played it live, you know. And it was great because it was live. And in the big orchestra, and it was, that's what I like doing, you know, something is a bit of a challenge. So it, it was just about doing something that we hadn't done before, really. I love, um, I love how it starts so mellow before it finally kicks in and then it just ripped your face well, off. <laughs> it's a great well, song. You know, is if you're given a title, you're given a, a storyline, basically, just by the title. Yeah. And of course, if it's a James Bond thing, you know they're all kind of the same. You know, they they start off, you know, like like a story, and then they turn into this big, you know, crash bang wallop bang, you know, <laughs> sort right, of right. excitement. Yeah. So, but it was fun. It was fun. Oh, know, I bet. We, well, tell me, tell me about Band on the Run too, because that's a song that shifts gears multiple times <laughs> throughout the song. It's it is. I just feel like it's one of the most beautifully complex songs ever but any memories of putting that one together i love hearing the people that were actually in the room you were playing on such an iconic song i'm getting goosebumps even asking you that well we paul you gotta remember that we were all into this fusion stuff i mean the mood is just to do it you know you'd do like a song it wouldn't be just one song it'd be like three songs joined together <laughs> <laughs> and it was something we were all doing so and the Moody's did it after I left. We were doing that same sort of thing, if you know what I mean. They're more like compositions rather than just single songs. And that one was something that we already knew a little bit because we'd rehearsed it before we went out to Lagos to do any recording. We'd learnt it as a band. So when we got out there and Paul got the tapes that we had the demos of stolen, um, we just learned it. We kind of knew it, and I just played a bit of guitar, and he played drums. That's the way we put that album together. But you know, we had the, we had like I say, we we just knew how to do that. We had that feel thing going between the two of us, you know, and we got through it that way. So we knew all the parts, and then all the rest of it was kind of made up after, and it wasn't made up based around the, the band recordings that we'd done prior to going, because, you know, we just basically started again after we got the basic track down. 
Oh. And um, <clears throat> so there you go. But I think that's I think it's because of the the feel we got between the two of us that made that album a little bit more different than just the band album. Sorry. Absolutely. Uh, maybe time for one more wing song. How about Maybe I'm Amazed? That is uh, just beautiful, especially when Paul starts sort of doing his trademark, I don't want to say shouting, singing at the end, but uh, that 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 sounds reductive. But uh, it's I, I love that song. Uh, where where how, do, you, do you know how he came up with it, where he was when he wrote it? or He would have been up in Scotland, I would have thought, when he came up with it. I don't know. I really don't, because I don't really consider that to be a wing song. It's more of a Paul song. You know, it was more, I think it wasn't it for his own album or something. I think like it was. That. And you got Wings did like a live release. Of we it. did a live version. Over America. Yeah. Something like that. Exactly. That's what it was. Got so that, that wasn't really my, you know, I wasn't part of that too, too much. Gotcha. But, gotcha. Uh, yeah, but you played though. it many times over the years at shows, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I don't do that kind of song. I wouldn't be doing that song on my set, you know. It's sure. Like, of course, of course. Well, there was, I mean, there were so many um, My Love and Silly Love songs. I mean, people can just rattle them all off. It's just, it's just good, great, great stuff. Um, okay. But how about, you know, anything from your solo career, you know, after the wing stuff? Um, it, let, here's, I'll, I'll phrase it this way. If, if people know your moody stuff and know your wing stuff, obviously, all of that's so famous and iconic. Let's say there's someone listening to this, maybe younger, that doesn't know Denny Lane's solo stuff. Do you have something like, where should they start? What's like, <laughs> like a solo album that you're particular, that would be like a good entry point for them? It would be Say It Don't Mind, because Say It Don't Mind was a big hit by Colin Blundstone from the Zombies. Zombies. Years later, yeah, he, he went solo and then put that out and had a number five hit with it in England. Mm -hmm. And that was the song that I kind of started my new, you know, career in a way with that song. I put it out. It became, it was a style that I was doing, had strings on it and all, like I said, John Paul Jones did the string arrangements. And it had basically folk musicians on it. And, um, and that was the direction I went in from then on, really. Um, it was on Deeram, which was the new Decca label, you know, the Moody Blues are on Decca, on Deeram as well. And it was a whole new beginning. So that's really when I started to do my solo stuff. And then it went from there to the 80s when I started doing solo albums. And I would be playing probably most of the instruments, except, you know, uh, Rick Waitman was on one and Chris Slade from ACDC was on another one. But generally speaking, I spent the 80s just making solo albums and uh, it was a kind of self-indulgence thing, you know. Um, that's about it, really. You earned to be, you earned the right to be self-indulgent by that point. Come on, man. <laughs> you do what you want. I was doing my thing songwriting-wise is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, and yeah. Because of that, you know, they just kept coming out. It was the first <laughs> time I'd really done that, you know. So I was like doing it like as much as I say Paul was doing it, you know, I was, I was just writing songs and making albums. That's all I did for about five years. Nice. And I'd learned a lot about recording and, and doing it all myself. So I enjoyed that, really. It was a whole new beginning. You know? That's so cool. So then after getting to do all of the solo stuff, um, was it? Was it re rewarding to finally, you know, to re hook back up with the Moody's on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame stage? I know everyone I interview says they don't care about accolades and all that, but come on, it's got to feel good to to go in with the band that you founded, you know? Oh yeah, 
It was great to see Mike Graham. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, go now, go us there. You got to remember that you can't get, can't get into the Hall of Fame unless you've got a number one hit, and that was the only number one hit the movie's ever had. So I mean, that got us there, and I was like Justin anyway, and John. Yeah, I knew John a little bit, but not really. Because he was in Ray Thomas's band before, and he was actually he was invited to be the bass player in the Moody's to start with, but he turned it down. So it was yeah, it was a great reunion from that point of view. It was just very very you know, I don't know something. The fact that we were all there made it important because I, I originally I wasn't told that I was going to be there, and then a couple of my friends kind of called in and said, why isn't Denny invited and whatever? They were on the board and everything. So I got in and uh, it worked out really well. I want to say Justin and John especially were very nice to me. Of course, Micah's body was there. And unfortunately, Ray Thomas had passed away a few months before that, which was a big, you know, dark cloud, really. But other than that, it was a great night, you know, and it, well deserved, I think. Even without me, it was well-deserved because of all the stuff they did, you know. Oh, yeah. Well, and we've interviewed Justin Hayward a couple times. So, yeah, of course, their stuff is legendary, too. But I'm so glad that they, you know, included the included you, asked you to come on because, I mean, you you made that band. I mean, you know, you you, you, birthed, well, you birthed the thing. <laughs> yeah, you know, a lot of people, a lot of Moody's fans, the second, excuse me, second leg of the Moody's didn't even know I was in the band. <laughs> You know, a lot of them don't don't associate me with that band, but there you go. It helped. You were on it the day you were on the past before the days of future past. <laughs> um, I love it. Well, I, do you think Wings could ever go into? Obviously, Beatles are in and Paul's in, but I think you could be a double inductee one day. <laughs> I know whether that'll ever happen because that, that's put down as Paul's uh, Paul's projects really. I don't think Wings were looked upon as a band within the business. They made up they've already been looked like that way by the fans, but not within the business. It was Paul's solo stuff at just yeah. when John did his solo stuff. And you were sort of his you, you view Wings sort of just like his I don't want to say backing band, but you know what I mean. Like it was his solo thing and you guys were were helping him do it kind of sure. thing. It was Paul McCartney and Wings, wasn't it? That's actually true. All right. Well, I really appreciate. I mean, I I didn't know even know we get to do such a deep dive on so many different songs. But let's bring it. Let's before we run, let's wrap it around full circle back to the Rams head. You know, uh, pretend I'm not even here and speak directly to the listeners and say, you know, hey, hey, D.C., Maryland, the, the whole area. Come on out. You're going to have a good time. Yeah, well, I hope to see a lot of people I've seen at the Rams head before, you know, and I've always had a good night there. It's a great, you know, musical audience. They know their music, and uh, you know. So I'm come out and see this. This is this is fun. Just sitting and talking to people about what went down, how it came together. You know, it's it's more than just going and listening to music. So you're getting a few little, <laughs> few little uh, ideas of how things came together, and that's what I think people will appreciate. You know. Well, um, hopefully they won't ask you the same questions I just did, or uh, you'll be prepared for them. So I guess it works out either way. But try uh, not to repeat myself. Yeah, exactly. Well, I appreciate you so much. You joining us, Denny Lane, not not Penny Lane. He'll punch you if you say it, Denny. Uh -huh. Lane. Danny Lane, uh, Sunday, February fifth at Rams Head in Annapolis. Thank you so so much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. Take care. 
Thanks so much for listening to Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Our theme music is Scott Buckley's Clarion. Remember to give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time. wanted to take a second to tell you about an app I really enjoy. Living in the D.C. area is great, and Podcast D.C. gathers all of the local shows that I like all in one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast D.C. is the new local app with hundreds of D.C. area podcasts to choose from. I can earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts I love instantly. Available in the App Store or in Google Play, listen local with Podcast D.C.